Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. We are just one or at most two weeks away from the end of the state legislative session. Sine die, as we like to say uh, in terrible, probably mispronounced Latin. Uh, but we're that close to the end and we are yet to see a budget proposal at Ooh. all. <laughs> we haven't seen one from anybody, not either party, not any office holder, not the governor, not the Democrats, not the Republicans, not even any private groups. Uh, you know, sometimes we're involved in submitting budgets for uh, consideration as well. And we've not seen a cohesive budget proposed yet. Word on the street is that they are nearing a deal and that we will likely see one next week. Uh, that is the week of the 16th through 20th. And when you think about timeline, I think that makes sense because often the legislature wants to leave a little bit of cushion so they can come back and override gubernatorial vetoes. Especially line item vetoes. Especially line item budget vetoes. Uh, And so we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Joining me today, as always, are my co-hosts, Bailey Perkins-Wright. Hello. Hello, Andy. And Scott Melson. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Um, And uh, listeners, hello to you as well. Uh, Guys, let's maybe start there with the budget for just a moment since we're already talking about it. Um, Bailey, anything that you expect to see in the next week? Is is my take on this sound accurate to you? We expect to see it in the next few days? Yes. And especially this is something that's common from year to year. This isn't an anomaly, right? Um, the legislature takes up all kinds of bills throughout the year and devotes mainly the end of April and the month of May to the budget. And of course, there's budgetary conversations throughout the year, especially hearing what things lawmakers, you know, want to move um, in advance, but also as you know, the dramas brew of, you know, this person's bill didn't go through and that didn't get voted upon. Therefore, we're not going to go with this person's budget interest. Right. (laughs) So all of those, you know, type of, you know, politics happen. um, But there's always key members, which typically is the appropriations chair of the House, the appropriations chair of the Senate, the speaker of the House, the president pro tem, the governor, and also probably, if not the secretary of state, then the governor's budget person, you know, at least those five people, maybe one other, you know, key person in the process sits together, you know, for hours, you know, for those couple of weeks to pull together and negotiate what's going to be the final version of the budget. Then one day it appears and it moves through the process. Um, I mean, those five people take time to deliberately think about it because it has to pass both chambers and be signed by the governor. So it's in the best interest of the people who are coming together in the back room to be able to be on one accord on what the plan is. And to Andy's point, that doesn't always happen because sometimes there are vetoes that come from the governor, but sometimes the House and Senate are prepared for that, right? Um, but the downside to that is that it doesn't leave room for 
um, perspective from the other all the other members, members, right? Exactly right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's uh, I don't know, it's 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 five people in a room crafting a billion dollar budget that is uh, introduced thirty minutes before the committee meeting, passed on party lines, and uh, then signed into law with minimal to no review, which is, I think, just what the founders intended. Right? That's uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's that's uh, democracy at work, right? So uh, I think. But this even is... beyond the people, like <laughs> as far as like the House and Senate members, Oklahomans don't get the opportunity to have a say about whether or not they like this budget or they don't like it. So I think that's definitely one of the flaws in the process. Like one of the things that constantly is lifted um, during legislative sessions uh, was the, uh, was it the constitutional measure about like when education had to be funded? Yeah, April 1st. Mm -hmm. April 1st. And that deadline is never met. It's always surpassed and it waits until this time in February. I mean, I'm February and May where this omnibus budget is pulled together, right? And they do that on purpose because it leaves little room for anybody to piece it apart. They tried to make it to where everybody at least has their little part that they wanted to see. So everybody, at least to Scott's point in the majority, you know, they get enough support to be able to, to move it through the process. Now, what I expect to see, um, I expect to see some temporary tax cuts, right? Uh, we're in a time where it seems like we're rolling in the dough. If you look at, you know, how much money has flown in the state through federal uh, pandemic relief funding and other measures um, like the, the transportation funding, right? That's coming down to the states. Um, so this is a time where Oklahoma is far from a budget crisis in the way we were five, six years ago, right? Um, so there probably will be some forms of tax cuts, but not permanent tax cuts just while we got the money, right? It's tax relief, Bailey. It's tax Excuse relief. me, tax relief. No relief, so, tax relief, right? <laughs> um, and then what else would I expect to see? I definitely expect to see at a minimum flat budgets to modest increases for certain agencies, mm -hmm. um, which everyone will be at the minimum happy that like, they're not going to have to worry about losing what they had in previous years. But as we always say in the tax policy world, a flat budget is technically a budget cut because cost increase over time. And so I would expect to see maybe modest increases to many um, programs like in education, right? This is another year where they're probably gonna say, we funded education more than any other time in Oklahoma history, right? When you look at just face value on the dollar and not- But they'll give know, that money to like a specific pet project within education. And then they'll just say, we funded education. It's like, well, you gave it to, you know, wealthy uh, private school or charter or something, things in one small district or something. Right. I do think, well, I'm going oh, to say, like, I, I think with some of the big shifts that are happening between state agencies, like um, the, the shift from the tax commission, moving motor vehicles from the tax commission over to OMES, 
um, then we'll see you know a big reallocation of money, which is appropriate. Mm-hmm. But I expect when that budget drops and the news writes about it, people will be like, "Holy crap! OMES got you know three hundred million dollars more." And it's like, well, there may be well, a- they're taking on a whole new service, right. yeah, right. But well, that, this is that does have like carryover effects because that means the tax commission loses some economies of scale and and that they have to make up and so it invariably it is a a bumpy transition well so this is the thing right like and this is part of the issue going back to just like you know the timing and you know yes from a practical standpoint you know they do the budget at the end because it's the most contentious they wait until 30 minutes before the meeting or five minutes before the meeting to <clears throat> give people the bill text because they don't want to fight over it. They, they, they want to push the deadline and say, you don't have time to read it. You got to trust us. We have to pass it right now. So either pass it or don't pass it. And then it gets passed and, and they, they don't, they don't want to try and haggle with, you know, all, you know, 140 something members of the legislature over what's in the budget. Um, but, but the problem, I maybe mean, there's a lot of problems with that, if we, if we, as we've already noticed, but the, the budget is super complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Bailey, this is what you do for your, like, living, right? Like, government relations. Like, Andy, you and I, like, have watched this as as carefully as, I think, anybody who's who's not in professional politics for the last several years. Um the budget process is complicated. The budget itself is complicated. The funding mechanisms are complicated. Reallocating funds, like it's very, very complicated. There are literal PhDs who like working in and around it on the Oklahoma budget is their entire job. And, and so, so many the other funding thing, sources going into it too. Yeah. And the other, so the other thing that happens is when, when it gets done kind of in a back room like this, and then you only have 10 minutes to read it, there's no time for explanation. Right. Like you spend the next year explaining what the budget did and living with the ramifications of of that good or bad. And so, you know, I really you know, it's not that it would matter because, as you guys already noted, right, they're they're constitutionally supposed to fund education by what, like April something every year and it never happens. I thought they repealed that. Maybe they did. I I don't remember. But I mean, I wish I wish there was like a law like a law that said the budget has to be the first thing that they do, but also that it has to be done like within the first, you know, four weeks of session, you can't do anything else to be done the budget. Right. Like that's, you know, we always hear politicians like talk about, you know, we should run our budget the way that the families do around their kitchen table. Well, I don't like wait until the very last thing every month to decide how I'm going to spend my money for that month. Right. (laughs) Like it's, you know, you should, you you raise a great point because different states do their legislative sessions in different ways. Texas is a great example, right? Because we're always talking about competing with Texas. They have sessions every other year. Right. And in those off years, it's a budget session, right? Right. So all they're talking about is their state's budget. I mean, yes, Texas is way bigger than us and has like, you know, a way bigger budget (laughs) than we do to tackle, but it's still, you know, a great model, you know, to um, have time where you're focused solely on the budget and then in other times focus on those other things that need to be addressed. I mean, we already have, you know, the setup in our process to where if there is an issue that comes up that needs to be tackled immediately, you know, governor can call a special session, right? But 
I also love the idea of having dedicated time to focus on the budget because that also keeps us from focusing on tedious things that are not relevant to anything but someone's re-election talking points, right? Every single year. <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah. And so, you know, I just, it's, you know, it's neither here nor there. It's what it is this year. I, I agree, Bailey. I think we're going to see some, uh, some temporary tax relief. They're not going to do things that are permanent because then they would be faced with the uncomfortable prospect of potentially having to raise taxes, which is a, uh, very, very difficult tasking in the Oklahoma State Legislature. I'm very interested to see, you know, personally and professionally, um, how managed care shakes out. That's one of the big, big issues. It's in conference right now. Um, hearing a lot of rumors, I don't know anything for sure, so I'm not going to say a whole lot more than more than that. Other than um, there could be some pretty major changes coming to the state's Medicaid program. Um, um, and, and it's not really clear yet exactly what, what that's going to look like. So that's a, that's a big, uh, a, a big source of intrigue right now. I agree, Bailey. I think the budget's going to be mostly flat, maybe a few areas that are, uh, increased a little bit, um, um, with some, you know, some, some tax cuts that are due to expire in two to three years or something like that so that they can, we can, they can renew them in the future if they need to, but they don't have to take any action for the taxes to go back up. Yeah, I do think uh, we should be on the lookout for the potential that the governor vetoes the budget this year, right? There, as session is is winding down, uh, the governor, in fact, just this week, right, uh, vetoed a bill that would, uh, on its face, uh, make cross jurisdictional um, uh, enforcement of the law easier between the state and tribal jurisdictions right it was dealing with uh with um automobile tickets and and driver's licenses and all of that and he vetoed that it that bill passed the senate uh unanimously and i think there were four dissenters in the house just so i mean essentially that's absolute spillover from the mcgirt conflict that's happening between the governor and the, the tribe. governor and the tri and tribal right. nations right he doesn't want to like, you're soft on that but i i've heard that they may come back and override his veto on that which i think would fuel his fire um to veto the uh the budget and you know as we'll get into in just a moment all of this swaddlies and uh school shenanigans is not helping the executive branch build any goodwill with the legislature and i think they might want to send a message to him saying Hey, we're not gonna, you know. Yes, we gave you more power and authority to do things, but we're gonna rein it in with the purse strings. And so he might say, "Well, this isn't uh, this isn't the budget I want. This doesn't fund the things I want. This doesn't give credits to the things that I want." And he can veto it. In which case, the legislature could come back and override it. And, and they have the numbers to do that. They have the numbers, and it would allow perhaps. And this is like, you know. Uh, the dark side of politics we don't like to acknowledge but it would allow both the governor and the legislature to to uh, portray themselves as the good guy right the governor could campaign and say like i stood up to the legislature and i vetoed this and i i said no i put my foot down and his supporters would say good on you kev right and then the legislature legislature could say you know we we funded what we needed to we took a measured approach blah 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 and 
their supporters would support them in doing that as well, right? So sometimes political theater um, plays out, you know, in with actual like dollars and cents. Yeah, well, and I think you know, I think you're you're right on that in terms of the budget. It is it is interesting to me. The governor has vetoed a number of bills this year, many of them that passed unanimously, right? He he uh, vetoed this uh, this bill about uh, uh, cross cross enforcement between law enforcement agencies between tribes and the state. He vetoed a bill, a financial transparency bill. He vetoed a bill that passed unanimously that required uh, gubernatorial, gubernatorial appointees uh, to be subject to uh, financial disclosure requirements. He vetoed that. Um, you know the uh, the governor doesn't any any shyness that he has had uh, about what he thinks his power is or should be or what kind of scrutiny or oversight the executive branch should or shouldn't be subject to he's uh, he's lost it he's pretty he's uh, he's pretty seems pretty open that he he thinks he should be able to do what he wants with uh, with with little to no interference from the legislature. Is, is there a time frame on how soon after a veto the legislature has to act to override it? Like, do they have five days? I don't think there's a five days, but it definitely has to happen before signy die. Right. So my question really was about that financial disclosures bill, right, that he vetoed. Because I know a number of the legislature uh, legislative members are unhappy about that. Um, and I, could, I wonder if that might be the thing, right? They come back and override his veto on that, and then he gets mad and vetoes the budget, and they come back and override that or something, right? Like, there's always something is always at work in the background. All right, well, uh, let's move on to the budget. Move on from the budget. We'll talk about that a lot more in weeks to come once we actually see it. Uh, and let's move on to the latest updates on Barbecue Gate or Swadley's Gate, Fo Foggy Gate. I don't know. Do we have a do we have an official scandal hashtag for this? Uh, regardless, we call it so soggy bottom, soggy bottom gate, soggy bottom gate. That's good. Yeah. Uh, regardless of, I guess what we call it, I think there were two important developments this week that came to light. Um, the first one is probably just worth the mention. The second one we'll talk a bit more about. The first one was an, another excellent uh, report from the Frontier, uh, and the headline says, "Quote." Months before seeking bids, a state tourism official spoke of a deal for Swadley's Foggy Bottom Kitchen to, quote, make money from day one. And indeed, uh, that they got receipts, right? Like the conversation, the emails are basically like, we got you. We won't even charge you. You know, and they just, it's exactly what we've all thought was the case. Um, and so... That and that's a government one-on-one, -on -one, right? There, You don't put things in writing in that way, especially in a text message or an email or however that was, was done, like, because those things in moments like this can come back against you. Right. What you're saying is if you're going to break the law, at least don't email about it, right? Like <laughs> Don't. Not not encouraging anybody to break the law, right. but it, it is a lesson that you know when things you, can be used against you. When you do your crimes, it is best not to leave evidence. You know, this reminds me when I was in high school. Uh, one day, I had someone break into my car and steal my my Sony Discman, my CD player, 
that I had to, I had one of those tape adapters, right? And little tape deck adapters, cassette tapes. Anyway, I uh, left early that day, going to my great grandmother's funeral. And I got to my car and I immediately noticed that the cords were there, but the CD player was gone. I was like, what in the world? And so in the back seat, um, some stuff was like messed up and there was a hall pass in my car with someone's name on it. And I drove home because I thought we had to go. And my mom was like, oh, we got time. Go back up to the school. So I went up there and I went to our assistant principal and you know, told him what happened. And I was, he was like, I said, I don't know if anyone would be dumb enough, but I found this. And he looked at it and said, he is. I said, he is what? And he said, he's dumb enough. <laughs> I was like, okay, if the assistant principal knows you by name because he saw your name on a hall pass and all he says about you is that you're dumb enough, you do not have a good relationship with that AP. And indeed, he had just got off the phone with him or with the police because that student had left school and was walking down the street and a police officer saw him and picked him up for truancy and was bringing it back to the school. And Was he carrying a discipline? He wasn't. Uh, he had sold it to somebody else, which he confessed to. So I got it back um, and was able to go home. It, when I got it, it had somebody else's CD in it. And I tried to give the CD to the cop. Uh, and the cop was like, I don't want that. I was like, I don't want it either. <laughs> it's not my what CD. Was it? What's I, don't year, was it? I don't know. Not my kind of music. And uh, so anyway, so sometimes people, uh, they do leave a trail. Now, I'll say the, the, the state tourism official who spoke of that deal was uh, Gino DeMarco, whose name comes up now weekly, I think, uh, with this deal. I mean, at least like it's every time Gino DeMarco is in the news now, it's for doing something shady. Right, it is, whether it's yeah. PPE or whether it's tourism, or I mean, he's on the board of the healthcare authority now, right? Or is he on the board of the state department of health? He's on board of healthcare authority. authority. I mean, good, good God, what's like, what's gonna, what's gonna happen there? Yeah, I have not seen his name, you know, for winning a uh, forty under forty or one of those kinds of things. Um, the the other development this week that I think is really just the tip of the iceberg on this deal is that the House Special Investigative Committee that is formed to look into this scandal, um, held their first hearing this week. They had sent out subpoenas to a number of people, some of whom did not come anyway. Uh, and they heard testimony from, I know the director of LOFT, right, the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency, Mike Jackson. Um, he was there, and I think he was most of the time. There's a few other officials um, that are like lower level deputy directors who also spoke but it was uh, a really interesting. And to me, I mean, the, the top line takeaway is that uh, Director Jackson said that 12.4 million of the 16.7 million that were given to Swadley's was essentially misspent. That is 74% of the money that Swadley's uh, received. Loft is saying that shouldn't, shouldn't have gone to him. And they bought smokers. For a menu that didn't require smoked meat, right? <laughs> yes. So one that's of many the other piece too, yeah. that if you are going to use government money to purchase things, you shouldn't buy things that don't align with the thing you said that you're going to use it for, right? <laughs> they also, and this has been glanced over, uh, I think in some of the media reports, but when they talked about it before, when this all first came out, they bought smokers. And then in the emails, like Swadley basically said, or one of his people said, 
we're going to move the smokers from a couple of our restaurants to these state parks because we don't like the ones we have and they were buying new ones for their restaurants i don't want to and i i want to go back and do some research because i'm i'm like 98 percent sure that's how we it was phrased and i was like well did we did we then buy equipment not for the parks but for their restaurants and we got hand-me-downs and we and they still charged us more than double that's what happened in this report uh, yesterday, um, on Thursday, is when uh, Director Jackson was speaking to the uh, the committee. He said this happened because the State Department of Tourism lacked the proper checks and balances to audit this. Um, three examples that he gave uh, of how this money was misspent. One was that travel Swadley's travel was reimbursed multiple times, like three times. Um, and although there was one month in 2020 where the amount of mileage that they were reimbursed, the amount of money, um, if you if you took the total amount of money and divided it by the federal reimbursement rate for mileage, which is 56 cents per mile, the Swadley's was paid enough for someone to have drive around the globe four times, right? Like there was no way they actually drove that many miles. Um, also... Uh, they related to barbecue equipment. They uh, apparently expensed a cheese melter, which I didn't know was a standalone device. I thought it was an oven. Or a yeah, I was gonna say I, I have a I have a cheese melter at my house. We call it the oven. Right. Uh, yeah. Microwave. So. <clears throat> Maybe even like a little torch, like a little. Uh... So I'm actually as we were sitting here because I, I thought we were going here. I uh, I just did it. I did a quick some googling. So you can go to Kitchen Monkey. You can go to kitchen-monkey.com, and you can get you a commercial cheese melter. Apparently, it's a device. A commercial cheese melter that's 24 inches uh, for the making of, uh, you know, delicious treats like nachos or sandwiches or, you know, what have you. So, I can see that it's, it's essentially... A standalone broiler is what it looks like. Um, I want to say, what's the one that they 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 didn't they build a state like ten grand for this uh, for this thing? Yeah, they uh, um, they expensed it for eleven thousand six hundred dollars. Okay, well, the commercial cheese melter that I just found on KitchenMonkey.com, restaurant equipment and supplies, uh, this is listed here to retail for three hundred forty one American dollars and four cents. Wow. Um, the the so... one that Jackson said that they could, well, he said the only one they could find, the most expensive one they could find was like $5,500, which is yes. half of what they charged us. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking here and I'm seeing all of these are restaurant supply stores and I'm seeing, uh, I mean, hell, hell, the Williams and Sonoma one's only 165 bucks. <laughs> so, I mean, come on. I'm like, does anybody charge more? There's, there's like a thousand dollar one that's 26 inches, um, but I mean, all of these are, all of these are commercial. The most, the most expensive, largest commercial cheese melter uh, that I'm finding here on my, uh, my quick search is a 35 inch uh, countertop cheese melter for, for fourteen hundred dollars. So you know, I mentioned this last week, right? Like, people complain about bureaucracy and regulation and things like that. But when you have protocols in place and you have, you know, the objective selection processes for things and you have the checks and balances in place, it, I won't say it completely eliminates 
but it makes it a lot harder for these things to happen, right? And we just up and do whatever, and we let our friends and do contracts with them. And, you know, it leads to situations like this where we're buying $10,000 cheese melters that don't cost $10,000, right? Right, right? And so like those safeguards are so essential and it's also like imperative that we're holding our elected leaders and, you know, those who are appointed leaders in agency positions accountable to following those protocols. Because while it seems tedious, not following the process led to these moments. There's, I mean, there's so many layers to this that rub, I think, voters the wrong way, right? And this, I will say to your As point, they should. right. I mean, but most directly to your point, there is no way that someone who is running a successful business would tolerate this kind of fiscal mismanagement, right? Like you don't run a mortgage company and let people triple charge you for things, right? Like this is not how it's supposed to happen. Um, one of the other findings that uh, Director Jackson reported during the meeting yesterday or the hearing was that there were 59 subcontractors that Swadley's hired to do repairs or upgrades to these parks. Now, I mean, it's not unusual to have a number of subcontractors, but 60 subcontractors for six parks, like they missed out on economies of scale somehow, right? Like why wouldn't you have the same few people do the work if it was going to be similar and just, just as crazy. One of those subcontractors charged a $20,000 fee on top of the, the charge for their work but their work was only 53,000 and they added a, a $20,000 fee. And so that's 73,000. But then when Swadley's build the state, they added their own fees on top of that. Right. So we ended up paying way more fees than the actual work cost. And like that's stealing. <laughs> I mean, this, I mean, this sounds like the defense industry, right? Like these guys think they're building the F-35 over here. I mean, it's a restaurant for a state park, you know, right. like. And on top um, of that, a limited menu. It's not even the full Swadley's traditional menu. This, this is a separate thing. And so here's, here's, here's. I got one more thing and I'm hot to say it. The other thing that stood out to me when I was listening to this is that they expected there to be some loss when they were starting out, right? Like they have to cover operational expenses until revenue is coming in. But as revenue grew, as customers came and they made more money, they actually reported higher losses to the state, which is not how that works, right? And they did this, it's pretty clear, because the state said, we will cover you, you won't have any losses, for the first like million dollars of revenue or something. And so they just started like writing off and basically saying that they were not making money so that they could like keep their sweetheart deal even longer. And I was just like, wait, they sold more food and they lost more money. That's not how that works. So here's a real question guys. And I have no idea what the answer is. Um, where do we set the over under that somebody goes to prison for this? Like, is somebody going to go to jail? People wow. who have money don't go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I do think there will be some 
financial fines, I could see that, you know what I'm saying? But I don't suspect anybody's going to jail, especially because Winchester resigned swiftly and I, I don't, it would surprise me, I'll say, if somebody goes to, to jail for, for this money mismanagement. So, I, mean, I mean, is this going to be like, I mean, they effectively stole $12.5 million, but like nobody gets in trouble. You just have to like give it back. I Here's my what my gut says. I think Bailey's right. I think Winchester's out. He ducked out. He's gone. I mean, he'll have to testify, but I think he he took the hit he could take, and that was to lose his job. Um, so far, the governor has been above the fray. Uh, Lieutenant governor has been above the fray. At this point, I think it's down to Gino DeMarco and Brent Swadley. I think Gino will lose his job, um, presumably, but who knows, right? He will try to shift the blame to Brent Swadley. And I think there will be this impetus of like, oh, well, he keeps donating to all of us. Maybe we just find him and ask him to pay back a portion of it. And he may not, they'll probably like, some of this will go to subcontractors and it'll be up to him to recoup that money. But they will tell Swadley's he has to pay back, I don't know, 10 million. And then he will file for bankruptcy. It'll get tied up in the courts and the state will never see the money. That's my guess, but I don't know. I I think something like that would would happen too. I just there are moments where you you there are folks who get killed in this country and don't receive justice or like their murderers don't receive jail time. Like yeah. you know you what I mean? Video. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I just I wish I had more faith that like things that you know would would you know, happen the way that, you know, would happen to other people, but I guess we'll see. And I, I am, I am certainly no fan of like, you know, the, the criminal justicism system as it currently like exists. And I'm, I'm certainly not a like prison is the answer to, to crimes necessarily. Like, I think you need to have a prison system or penal system, but ours is woefully inadequate in terms of, you know, recidivism in terms of, <clears throat> rehabilitation and in, in terms of all that, I think by really any measure, our, our penal system. And inequitable licensing, right? Yeah, right. All the things. But, but being that that, it, being that that is the system that we have, it seems like someone should have to face some sort of consequences as opposed to just like, Oh, mm, my bad. We were going to do a fraud and you caught us. We won't do it again. <laughs> Well, I mean, because this wasn't an accident of, oops, we accidentally, you know, misplaced a dot or we typed in a wrong number or put in the wrong formula or whatever. Like this was intentional as Andy stated so well, a sweetheart deal, right? So yeah, what does accountability look like, especially because moments like this, like taxpayers should be asking questions and have that healthy skepticism in moments of this is like, where do we go going forward to ensure these things aren't happening anymore? And I will also say like, this is a reflection of when you have people who have never been in government before, like this government shouldn't run like a business. I mean, no business should run like this, 
but this is another example of how <laughs> like governments are not businesses, right? Mm -hmm. And there has to be a level of accountability and protection of our taxpayer dollars. And that has not been happening. It's been a series of different things, right? Um, even beyond just the Swadley situation. Yeah. Now, I mean, I say all of that, but I, it is important that you, while the House Investigative Committee doesn't have any uh, like uh, criminal jurisdiction here, they're looking into it because they're supposed to look into it. Um, but the state auditor is also investigating and OSBI is investigating. And so there is the potential for criminal wrongdoing and charges to be filed. Um, but Do you know... So at the federal level, right? So at the federal level, congressional investigative congressional committees like Congress, mm -hmm. Congress can re like they don't have like they can't charge people with crimes, but they can refer people like they can refer cases to the DOJ who can obviously charge people with crimes. Right? Can can the state legislature like if can they like if like the you know the state auditor and the USBI as you said are investigating. But if if the special investigative committee, if they learn of new crimes, like do they like can they refer those to OSBI? Do they refer those to the? Can they refer things to the attorney general? Like I would what, assume. Like, I mean, I would like, assume OSBI <clears throat> is watching the hearings the same way that we are, right? And that they are taking notes um, on the chance that a legislator asks a question they haven't asked, right? And they, you never know. And so I I I would. Um, I would suspect that there is some coordination there. Um, and Bailey just wrote in our little chat here. Yes, I think you're right. There is a, an investigation into the misspending of federal CARES Act. And so even if there's not charges at the state level, there's a potential for some charges at the federal level here too, right? Um, so anyway, this is this was just the first hearing of the House Investigative Committee. They have not set the date for the next hearing, but it will uh, likely continue. And uh, and I, from what I hear, I mean, all the reporters are like, "Oh yeah, we've got more information. We just don't have a chance to write it all up yet." So it'll continue to trickle out for the next several months. And the committees can keep meeting even after Sunny die, right? The committees That's can correct. meet even when they're not in session. Yeah, because this is not legislative business per yeah. se so yeah. this is not like a formal committee meeting that would tie to legislative session so yeah interesting anybody know how many investigations are you know stit and stit appointees facing it seems i'm kind of losing track it seems like there's a lot there's a lot but uh also tag agents <laughs> yes <laughs> there was some drama in the uh, tag agency world this week yeah, well, yeah, a good piece of, by Nondoc, right? Yeah, speaking of indictments, um, the multi-county grand jury filed their report on Thursday, um, and in it were a number of findings, as well as a whole list of like recommendations, <laughs> um, and which is a little weird. We'll talk about that. But the report says, among other things, that Governor Stitt put improper political pressure on his appointees, um, namely those at the Pardon and Parole Board. Uh, and kind of recommended that he not do that. They also recommended that the um, district attorney's council have a greater role in some of this, um, which I think is interesting because the the grand jury is convened by the DA, and the grand jury's authority really is just to decide if 
someone should be charged, right? They're, they're trying to make up, um, decide if there's enough evidence to indict somebody and, and not to make like policy recommendations, but it was a long report, like 40 something pages. And a lot of it was just like, here's what we think they should do. And I was like, that's not, that's not what you're supposed to be doing grand jury. But yes, there was also um, some of the recommendations and findings were related to the the tag agency world and representative O'Donnell and his wife. I mean, they, the grand jury recommended that legislators spouses not be allowed to own tag agencies, which is used to be the law. And then <laughs> lawmakers changed it and now they can, but it's, I don't understand. Uh, and from the attorneys I've talked to, they all kind of also agree that the grand jury is being used as a political tool here and not, not really what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, like, am I am I missing something? Are grand juries now some no, kind of legislative think, body that should be issuing policy recommendations? No. And my understanding from uh, from I think there was uh, an Oklahoma Watch piece about this as well. I think that might even be against the law. Like, there's a law that says grand juries are not supposed to like make allegations or accusations against federal or against uh, state officials. Like, it seems very improper. Um, how did, how did this begin? That's something I was missing of why were they able to even do this in the first place? Well, David Prater got them together in a room. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that's the, th I mean, this is the thing, right? Like, um, um, I'm trying to find this quote here. Da, 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 da. Well, Scott, while you're looking for that, I will uh, acknowledge that this is an issue um, that I even find myself agreeing with someone from OCPA with whom I generally disagree, right? Uh, Ryan Haney tweeted that for a report that makes so much hay out of transparency, the grand jury may be one of the most opaque institutions we have for a state that rarely uses the grand jury for actual indictments. We're on a weird path of using them for political hit jobs. And I read that and was like, well, yeah, not wrong, Ryan. Agreed, especially, I mean, the pendulum always swings. So it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, governor today or somebody else tomorrow, like we got to have, um, not, I'm not even saying, trying to say transparency, but like we got to have equity in how people are treated. So it's not dependent upon if a certain DA has a qualm with, <laughs> Right, a person or or whatever, it could be agnostic to whoever is serving in a seat. I agree with that, Andy. I mean, the grand jury only sees what the DA who convened them wants them to see. They're the ones that bring right. the 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 testimony, the evidence, everything. They bring it in and say, "Here's all the stuff that I want to present to you. What do you think I should do about it?" Um, there's no evidentiary rules about it. No procedures to like allow them to see other evidence. Like if they, if they wanted to say, well, what do we, what about the other side? Like that's not an option. Uh, and so they do nothing but, you know, follow the instructions of the DA. And, and so that was the thing that like really shook me when I was like, are they recommending the DA's council take on some additional responsibility and like have more power? Like, of course they're recommending that the DA's who convene them in such a right. Right. Like, insular circle. Yeah, this is this is um, as you as you mentioned, this is the rare instance where I actually uh, agreed with the statement from OCPA that was retweeted by um, 
uh, one of the governor's spokespeople, um, I was like, yeah, this, this seems like kind of bullshit to be honest. Um, like that, that, you know, this, it, it does seem like it's Prater, um, kind of trying to exert some political pressure or, um, um, uh, yeah, political Especially pressure. Especially on his way on, out the door, right? Right. Like, now, like, I'm not opposed to convening a grand jury for the purpose of, in, you know, looking at evidence and potentially issuing indictments about it. Like, there are some, I can see some merits to the grand jury process. There's an argument to be made there. I just don't think that this is playing out the way that most of us expected it to. And a reminder, um, there will be an election coming up for Oklahoma County to have a new DA, and it'll be the first time in a really long time that Oklahoma County will have a different person serving as DA. And so I encourage our listeners um, to do your research on who's running. Um, If there are candidate forms in your communities over the next few months related to that role, attend and ask them questions about things like this because you need to know where they stand on grand juries doing things like this, right? And if they support that, is that somebody you need as a DA, right? So I found it. This was a statement. Um, this was a statement from uh, Charlie Hanema, who's the governor's spokesperson. It says, quote, the grand jury process was a sham from the beginning and culminated with a report verifying this was little more than an outgoing prosecutor's latest abuse, abuse of the public's trust to target his opponents. That's all kind of just politics speak. But what I find interesting, it says Oklahoma law explicitly prohibits grand juries from making allegations that public officials have engaged in misconduct. So, huh. I mean, surely that doesn't mean that Oklahoma, that grand juries can't indict public officials, but maybe they have to only, like, if you're not going to indict them... You Don't make the recommendations, they, yeah. yeah. Right, like, if you're not going to... If, if, if they didn't do crimes, you can't just say that they were shitty. Right, I mean, that's, which kind of makes sense. Like, um, if, if it's not enough evidence to say you want to put them on trial you shouldn't be like well it's not as much but here's what you should do differently next time right that's like that's not that's not your job that's your job uh well we will certainly keep an eye on that as well i expect that too will result in more information uh, as we get closer to the elections this year uh and then maybe as we uh begin to wind down here we've got a few minutes left um Speaking of elections, there was an interesting story on Nondoc today, or not this week, I guess it was on Wednesday, that I'd missed. And, you know, a while back, you guys, we talked about when uh, Department of Veterans Affairs Director Joel Kinsel got into the governor's race. There were accusations that uh, he was making accusations that someone had been tampering with his department's computers. And he somewhat... uh, I don't think he actually said it, but I think he hinted that he thought it might be someone from the governor's office or campaign. Once they heard that he might run for governor, that they were trying to sneak in on stuff. But apparently uh, both Joel Kinsel and then uh, Gina Nelson, who's the Democrat who's running for state superintendent, both of their campaign websites were blocked by the state's Wi-Fi network. Um, And OMES was like, listen, it's because there were new websites and it's an automated thing. And this is, uh, you know, this, this happens. But given those 
two individuals. It, it doesn't say that there was any other candidates' websites blocked. Um, it just seemed like a little suspicious to me, and and I presumably to these candidates, right? That like they are they are both challenging, well, Governor Stitt and uh, Secretary Walters, right? So two guys who are in statewide elected positions that we know are friends. Ryan Walters is a a governor appointee. And yeah, only, only, only one is in a statewide elected position. That's well, that's true. I take that back. Both running for statewide elected positions, but those two guys are friends, you know, and for their opponents' websites to be blocked, it seemed a little suspicious. Do we think there this was actually uh malfeasance or just like a weird technical glitch? It's hard to prove, right? Like, so. I mean, considering other allegations before, it wouldn't be surprising. But also, if there's technical glitches in state government technology, that also isn't far-fetched, right? Yeah. Well, because <laughs> so, you can, I mean, they can specify what websites are whitelisted or blacklisted. And the non-doc article says all other statewide campaign websites in the gubernatorial and the state superintendent races were also accessible. So as and Kinsel just said, well, that's convenient. Um, so it's all been unblocked now, but I just also thought like, what a silly, if, if true, what a silly petty thing. Like what, you're going to block it from like a few hundred employees from getting to one person's website on their desktop computers. They could still do it from their phones. Like it just seemed like a silly thing to do. Well, and I could believe it more if other opponents of Ryan Walters and others were blocked because his biggest hurdle right now is the Republican primary, right? So if he didn't block people like or um, whitelist April Grace or someone, you know what I'm saying? Because if that would have happened, then that would have overtly shown that there was intentional trying to to block folks, but Jenna Nelson isn't a person he's going to be running against until after August, maybe, you know, right. depending on who ends that runoff. So that, that it wouldn't make sense to me of, of who would have been chosen to be listed. Yeah. Yeah. But, Interesting. Well, I just thought that was funny. There was also a, an interesting article. I don't have time to, I don't think we have time to get into it, but it talked about, um, oh, it was back to the tag agency issue. It was about Greg Treat and Terry O'Donnell. The article, it was written by Trey Savage there at Nondoc. Uh, it's called The Weird Political Misadventure of Two Tag Agent Bills. And it goes back to um, the year like 1978 or even before that. Um, and talks about how Senator Treat grew up in Catoosa, which is also where um, Terry O'Donnell is from, and that when Senator Treat was four months old, um, two men robbed the Catoosa Tag Agency, tied up the employees with duct tape. One of those employees was named Georgia McAfee, who years later ends up that she is Terry O'Donnell's mother-in-law right so georgia mcafee her mom owned the tag agency then she inherited it and now um her daughter i don't know her name but it's 
uh, representative O'Donnell's wife, you know, is set to, to inherit it. Um, and it was just this, like, what a weird kind of hyper-local political story, right? That two men who didn't know each other before families who were not related now end up about this bill um, where Senator Treat had first um, de- declined to hear it or something on, on their side. And it was like such a weird intersection. Anyway, all that to say, uh, you should read the article. I'll link to it in the uh, in the show notes. And uh, kudos to Trey Savage for doing a bit of Oklahoma history for us. Uh, I mean, they always do a great job with everything they have over there. Um, every every piece they do is is well written and well researched. So many thanks to Trace per usual. Yeah, I will also uh, a shout out to Mike Allen who does their political cartoons over there. Yes. He does a great job. And there was an episode of the non-doc podcast, which they don't do that regularly these days, but it was a few months ago and they interviewed him about his process of doing the cartoons. And it was really interesting. I don't, it's not something I was very familiar with, but I appreciated uh, um, him kind of giving an inside look. <laughs> One thing that I uh, stuck with me was that whenever he draws Governor Stitt, his eyebrows get a little bit bigger like each time. like he's been, it's like a running kind of gag and i thought that's that's real interesting so all right well that brings us to the end of this episode bailey had to hop off just now so that she could drive back to uh, oklahoma city uh so that just leaves me and scott so scott thanks for being here hey man appreciate it listeners thank you for being here as well um we hope that you uh find a, a few ways to Take care of yourself. I know a lot of folks are feeling pretty burned out at the end of session, as is often the case. Uh, So take some time off this weekend to relax. Uh, If you're going to the Capitol for any of the uh, marches or demonstrations this weekend in support of women's rights, uh, maybe I'll see you out there. We'll be there on Saturday. And uh, remember, decisions are made by those who show up. So whether it's at the Capitol for a protest, whether it's at the ballot box, in June, um, you have a chance to be involved in the decisions that shape our state. Please, I beg you, ask your friends and neighbors if they're registered to vote. There's just uh, a couple of weeks left to get registered and make sure people know that there is an election in June. A primary election in Oklahoma is incredibly important. Thanks and have a good week.